Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit saymythyroid.com forward slash peptides. Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and in this episode, I interviewed Dr. Weston Childs. This is the second time I've had Dr. Childs on the podcast, and in this interview, we discuss weight loss strategies in those with hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's. While weight loss is commonly associated with Hashimoto's, many people with hyperthyroidism experience weight loss. In fact, that described me when I dealt with hyperthyroidism. However, this doesn't describe everyone, as some people with hyperthyroidism struggle to lose weight, which is why we decided to discuss weight loss strategies in both those with hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's. And so let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. And with me, I have Dr. Weston Childs, and we are going to be discussing unwanted weight gain in both hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's. So let's go ahead. I'm going to give Dr. Childs bio right here, and then we are going to dive into the content. So Dr. Weston Childs is a former osteopathic physician that focuses on helping people with thyroid problems, weight gain, and hormone imbalances. He takes a functional medicine approach to these systems and believes that everyone, regardless of their hormone status, can get back to feeling 100% using a combination of natural and medical therapies. So it's great to chat with you again, Dr. Childs. It's good to be here, Dr. Osansky. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, we already have had you on our on my podcast and on YouTube. So it's great to talk with you again. And again, this time we're going to be talking about weight gain, problems losing weight. So... I'm sure there are some people with hyperthyroidism maybe viewing this and thinking, hey, I'm, I'm losing weight, you know, which, is, which is also common. When I dealt with hyperthyroidism, I lost 42 pounds, mm-hmm. but there are some people with hyperthyroidism where it's the opposite problem. And some people, when they become hyper, they're hoping to lose weight because mm-hmm. mo- most people with hyperthyroidism are women, not, not that men don't want to lose weight, but either way, you know, whether you're male or female, a lot of people want to lose weight when they when they realize they became, they're they hyperthyroid and yet they're gaining weight and they're like, hey, what's what's the deal with this? I see that weight loss is a classic symptom. Of course, with Hashimoto's, it's uh, common for people to gain weight. Either way, we know that weight gain is common with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, and in some people with hyperthyroidism. Why is that? Why? What are some of the reasons why some people with hyperthyroidism gain weight and not lose weight? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and I think in order to kind of talk about this, we have to get clarity on what we mean by hyperthyroidism and, hy- and hypothyroidism, you know, from, from our perspective. And I kind of want to talk about the way that I am seeing patients and kind of the way that you or was seeing patients, the way that you're kind of seeing patients. And I think it'll make a lot of sense as we kind of dive into this. But um, traditionally, we think about hyperthyroidism as having too much thyroid hormone, right? It's somebody who's producing too much thyroid hormone. That thyroid hormone is overstimulating their body in various ways. It's causing a rapid heart rate. It's causing their hair uh, follicles and, and cycles to 
rapidly turn over. So they're losing hair. It's revving up the metabolism. So they're losing weight. You know, they're having more gastrointestinal function. So they're having, you know, looser stools or even diarrhea. That's the hyperthyroid state. And then obviously hypothyroid, meaning low thyroid is the exact opposite. So traditionally we think about people who have hyperthyroidism as those people who are losing weight and people who have hypothyroidism as those people who are gaining weight, right? Like that's sort of the way that we think about it. The problem is it doesn't quite add up all the way because we still have hyperthyroid patients who are gaining weight, as you mentioned. So a couple of reasons for that. There are, there are a lot, and we can dive into these in more detail if we want. But I would say first and foremost, one of the main ways that doctors, it depends on kind of where you're at in this, this treatment, by the way, if you're going natural or if you're doing the conventional sort of medical route. But let's, let's just assume that you're somebody who is diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. doesn't matter if it's grave disease or toxic multinodular goiter or any of those things, right? It doesn't matter. If you have hyperthyroidism and you go see your doctor, what is your doctor going to do? they are going to reduce your thyroid function, right? They're taking you from a high thyroid level to a low thyroid level, or at least they're trying to bring you to a normal thyroid level. So all of the treatments that you're going to receive as you go to get treated for hyperthyroidism are going to slow down your thyroid, right? And this is kind of the way that I describe it to people is, uh, imagine if you if you have a level at 100, and let's say that 100 is a normal thyroid function. And let's say that when you're hyperthyroided, that level is 200. So you go to the doctor and your doctor's goal is to take you from 200 down to 100 using, let's say, methimazole in this case. It could be PTU, normally it's methimazole, some sort of anti-thyroid blocking medication. So your doctor takes you from 200 thyroid, they try to get you to 100, but they take you to 50, okay? So in that case, they took you from, from hyperthyroidism down past your normal thyroid function down to low thyroid function. So they effectively turned you from hyperthyroidism to hypothyroidism with the use of thyroid blocking medication. Now, most of these medications that doctors use, in fact, all therapies for hyperthyroidism do result in hypothyroidism. And we can go through these as we, you know, these are all therapies that you guys probably know about. We have anti-thyroid blocking medications. We have beta blockers usually to reduce symptoms, but those can actually cause problems with thyroid function as well. We have thyroid surgery, which is either hemithyroidectomy or complete thyroidectomy, which obviously once you remove the thyroid, that's a problem for thyroid function and radioactive iodine ablation. So all the therapies that hyperthyroid patients undergo they result in low thyroid function. So that's probably number one, right? And we'll talk about the importance of thyroid function as it relates to metabolism and controlling various aspects of your, um, of your body and, and other areas which are important for your weight. So I'd say that's number one. Number two, we have the people who have hyperthyroidism. That's an abnormal physiologic state. So what I mean is there are problems that are, that are underlying that issue, which are then manifested in the thyroid. So for instance, we have these underlying issues such as inflammation, gut dysfunction, insulin resistance, and leptin resistance, which may have preceded your diagnosis of hyperthyroidism. Now, when you get hyperthyroid, you have these underlying issues that still exist. They can cause weight gain by themselves. So each of these things, um, that would be one. And then I guess another one that I would add in there would be medications such as beta blockers. So we talked about methimazole and um, um, anti-blocking uh, thyroid medications, but other medications, including SSRIs, uh, antidepressants, narcotics, these can all impact thyroid function as well. So if you are a hyperthyroid patient taking some of these medications, these can also slow down your thyroid beyond which would be normal for you and lead to weight gain, or at least lead to conditions which then exacerbate weight gain. So I would say those are probably the four, I don't know, three or four main ways, however many we talked about there, the ways that hyperthyroid patients can start gaining weight. And actually this is, I would say very common. In fact, I think Another thing that's worth mentioning here, uh, Dr. Osansky, if I could just take a, a couple of seconds here is kind of explain the difference between the people that would probably be going to see their conventional doctor versus the people that would going to be that would be seeing you. So if you were going to go, let's say you were diagnosed with Graves disease, because that's the most common cause of hyperthyroidism. 
Um, let's say that you go, you're, you have kind of one of two options here. You can go take sort of the natural route and try to avoid the anti-blocking thyroid medications using supplements, diet, and lifestyle, which would probably lead you to someone like Dr. Osansky, right? That's what you're probably going to end up doing. Or you can go to your doctor, which is what most people do, and then they go down that path of taking anti-thyroid blocking medications. Now, depending on which path you take, the outcome is going to be a little bit different. So if you're going down the path where you're trying to do things more naturally, you're going to be you're going to be using supplements perhaps instead of medications generally. You know, so maybe you're using motherwort um, instead of you know antithyroid medication or bugle uh, or something like that, right? You might be using one of these, and that is going to probably they aren't necessarily as powerful as the medications, which means that the thyroid function is not going to go from let's say 200 down to 50. Instead, it might go from 200 down to 125. So in that case, you're still borderline hyperthyroid, which makes it you're more likely to lose weight um, when you're doing that route versus taking the more, I'd say, aggressive route of using medications. So I think the distinction between which which path you're taking, where you're at in the lifestyle cycle in terms of treatment, did you get your thyroid removed? Is it ablated? You know, what type of underlying issues you have? So it's a pretty complicated uh, scenario, I would say, and it really depends on the individual and where they're at. And that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's sort of how I think about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do see a lot of patients on the medication. Usually, it's the methimazole and and becoming hypothyroid, uh -huh. and you know, sometimes it is extreme. And you know, and as you said, with the beta blocker too, that could have you know that like propranolol could affect conversion uh -huh. of T4, T3, and some some others as well. But very interesting as far as you you saying where where you mentioned that they could have underlying conditions like insulin resistance, leptin mm -hmm. resistance before they were de developing hype, before they actually developed hyperthyroidism. And they might not be aware of that condition because when they go to see the endocrinologist, they're focusing on the hyperthyroidism, doing the thyroid panel might do like, I mean, I guess they might do a CMP, a comprehensive metabolic panel, mm -hmm. but looking for glucose, but that doesn't always tell us if someone has insulin resistance, they might do a CBC with differential. So let's talk a little bit about insulin resistance, sure. leptin resistance, um, with both, I guess, hyperthyroidism and, and Hashimoto's. So how do those impact weight loss? Like how do those, you know, lead to problems losing weight? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So I think it's a, it's a, uh, the relationship is such that insulin resistance can cause weight gain, but then also thyroid dysfunction can lead to insulin resistance. So you kind of have insulin resistance as an underlying cause, which may precipitate weight gain. But then once you have the thyroid problem, then that's going to also make worse insulin resistance. So I would say um, sort of the way to think about it is, is like this. So insulin resistance, for those of you listening to this, probably have some awareness of, I say, of, of insulin and, and leptin. But insulin is a hormone that is secreted by the pancreas. And its job is really to control blood sugar levels. And so what happens as a result of lifestyle, chronic stress, the overconsumption of sugars and carbohydrates, your body becomes resistant to the effects of insulin inside of the body. And this is very common. Uh, it's just, you know, statistics put it as high as 50% of all people in the United States have some degree of insulin resistance. And you can think of insulin resistance existing on a spectrum, wherein some people have very severe insulin resistance, and some people have less severe insulin resistance. But I would say just discussing and, and my experience in looking at people and treating people, most people who end up with thyroid problems already had some element of leptin or insulin resistance before their diagnosis of their thyroid problem. And the problem with insulin resistance is it can stir up inflammation inside of the body. It's a precursor for a lot of conditions, including metabolic syndrome. So it, it's in, increasing inflammation, causing problems with cholesterol. It's impacting how well your body's able to utilize sugars inside of the body and where they go. It's actually when insulin resistance is present, it's sort of sending the signal to your body to push more of the uh, food that you eat inside of your fat cells. So that's 
what the way that I think about it is when insulin resistance is present, losing weight is going to be very difficult for that reason. Now, in the case of hyperthyroidism, um, we kind of have a double whammy thing kind of going on here. So hyperthyroid states do result in insulin resistance, but at the same time, hyperthyroid states, if left untreated, also usually result in weight loss. So you kind of have a this ebb and flow wherein the hyperthyroidism is, if causing weight loss, is sensitizing the body to insulin while simultaneously causing insulin resistance. So there's probably, you know, some, some teeter-tottering that occurs there. And depending on where you're at in terms of your treatment, are you blocking too much thyroid medication? That may tip you more over into the insulin resistance side of thing as opposed to the insulin sensitizing uh, sort of the equation. So it's sort of a, a teeter-totter effect there depending on where you're at with your treatment with hyperthyroidism. Okay, so leptin uh, is a, another story, but I would consider that to be a fat storing hormone as well. Leptin is also a hormone secreted by fat cells instead of the pancreas in this case. And I would say it's probably the most important and underappreciated hormone as it relates to your ability to lose weight, um, if you, especially if you are a thyroid patient. So the way that it kind of works physiologically speaking is that as you gain more weight in your body, as your fat cells accumulate in size, they start to secrete more leptin. And the whole goal of that is for your fat cells to communicate with your brain because they don't really have a, a direct messaging system built in. So what they do is they start secreting leptin out and that leptin floats up to the brain. It triggers the hypothalamus and it's supposed to be the communication between the fat cells and the brain that when fat cells are high to tell the brain, hey, we need to change whatever we're doing. We need to increase metabolism. We need to alter our appetite. We need to alter enzymes and protein production such that we start burning off fat so we can lower these leptin levels or at least the fat cells so that we, then we can lower the leptin levels. So that's the communication between leptin, your fat cells, and your brain. Now, the problem is the communication is between the fat cells and uh, your brain in the hypothalamus. And that's sort of the same area that, as you know, and we'll talk to, about this probably a little bit later, but that's sort of the same area that the thyroid is being regulated. So we have the hypothalamic pituitary axis that then inv is involved with the thyroid gland as well. So leptin and thyroid hormone are they're connected to each other such that when you have problems with thyroid hormone or leptin, you have problems with the other. So it's kind of a, a bi-directional relationship there. So if you have problems with leptin, you'll have problems with your thyroid. And if you have problems with your thyroid, you'll have problems with leptin. And I would say, again, that leptin is one of those that isn't being looked for. We know the importance of insulin because people have diabetes, they have metabolic syndrome, et cetera. I, I just don't think at least, I, I, you know, I'm ordering it a lot or, or was ordering a lot. Um, I don't know. Are you ordering a fair amount, uh, Dr. Osansky, or are you, uh, where do you sit on the whole leptin? Sort of yeah, I can't say I order a lot of leptin. Actually, mm -hmm. after our the first interview, I started doing it more with, with mm -hmm. some patients, you know, mainly if they are gaining weight, having problems uh, losing weight. Um, I do commonly recommend insulin, like testing, mm -hmm. doing a fasting insulin along with hemoglobin A1C. So I don't know where you stand on those markers, but yeah. but what but what leptin, I just a few months ago I started as far as de depending on the person. I can't right. say everybody would hyperthyroidism, everybody, even with Hashimoto's, maybe I should, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it depends on their symptoms. You know, I think it depends on what they're experiencing. It, it's good if, if weight is in the equation, you know, if weight is a problem for them, then I would always recommend, you know, getting it, you might as well yeah. grab it. And the thing is, is in order to test for leptin, you need to be in a fasted state. Typically I will test for leptin. I'll check for insulin as well, because you want um, insulin. You want to, you want to be in a fasted state for testing insulin. Uh, you can check a 8 a.m. serum cortisol at the same time and thyroid function. So you can get an idea of what's happening in the body by checking all of these hormones at the exact same time. Uh, but yeah, I would say in terms of the importance of, I would say leptin, probably number one, number two, most important fat weight loss hormone, however you wanted to kind of describe it, uh, because if it's dysregulated, then weight loss is essentially going to be very difficult. I, I guess I can kind of talk a little bit about leptin resistance if, if you don't mind. 
Sure. So leptin resistance and the diagnosis of leptin resistance is something that I would say a lot of doctors are unfamiliar with. So if you're going to your conventional doctor and you say, hey, can I check my leptin? I heard that, you know, leptin's important for losing weight. I'm not losing weight. You know, what's the deal? Um, and leptin plays a big role in this, obviously. But the problem is a lot of doctors are not really familiar with the physiology that we just described. So in the case of leptin resistance, we talked about the normal physiology here, but let me just explain what happens with leptin resistance. So similar to insulin resistance, if you have leptin resistance, your body becomes desensitized to the leptin that's there. So remember, under normal physiologic conditions, as fat cells increase, leptin levels will increase as well. That leptin is supposed to go to the brain and say, hey, brain, let's make some changes. Let's increase metabolism. Let's change our appetite. Um, and let's, let, let's, we need to do something so that we can lower fat cells. Now, when you become resistant to leptin, uh, either because your fat cells are inflamed or because you have some other lining issue like a thyroid problem, which of course, many people here will have probably a combination of both, especially if you have uh, an autoimmune related issue. That, that system becomes dysregulated and the brain is no longer sensing it. What ends up happening is that leptin levels increase, right? Um, and your body is, instead of getting the signal that there's too much there, it gets the exact opposite signal. So it kind of, it kind of thinks that there isn't enough leptin to go around because it's resistant to it. So then what does that do? Well, then that triggers more appetite. That, that triggers a decrease in metabolism. And now you have the exact opposite of, of what should be occurring actually happening inside of your body. So this is where people who have thyroid conditions, this is where they get ravenous appetites, where they're, you know, they're already overweight. They're maybe they're reducing their calories already, already to something like 1500 calories per day. But guess what? They're still gaining weight. They're not losing weight. And they're meanwhile, their metabolism is as high as it can possibly be. So you have this mismatch between appetite and metabolism, even though you're already overweight, and it should be changing. And it isn't. And a lot of that is driven by the mechanism of leptin resistance. So that's why that's where this gets really important. Yeah, it makes sense. Again, similar with insulin resistance, you have higher levels, and that's what you're looking for in a test. You're looking for, you know, the leptin to be high, and you know, the person's going to have an increased appetite and still going to want to eat, and and that's not going to help. But is it safe to say that even in cases like where they are restraining themselves from eating, it still might not be enough? Like if someone just changes their diet with leptin resistance. Insul At least I find that with insulin resistance, there's usually like an inflammatory component. So the person could be following the ketogenic diet and they might lose weight, but it depends on the person. Some people still even following keto might struggle making the dietary changes alone or even in combination with exercise. So I don't know if you found that when you were seeing patients. Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and you can find both of these on Amazon, as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting autoimmunethyroidgroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you could visit the website workwithdrerick.com. Just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before working with me. And now back to the show. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, this is, if you are in a position like, like ours, where you get to see a lot of people, uh, different patients, you get to see how they react to different diets and different protocols and things like that. It becomes easy to look at it from a different angle than I think what most people do. Because if you're like, if you're looking at it from the perspective where if you want to lose weight, all you need to do is reduce your calories and exercise more. And if you're not doing, if you're not losing weight, then you're not doing that. There, there's something wrong with that model because it doesn't apply to everyone, especially those people who are in the thyroid situation. So I can, I can recount numerous examples of patients who are 
eating, you know, a thousand calories per day. And I have no reason to suspect that they're lying. I believe that they are telling me the truth when they say that, right? Most people will say, well, they're, they're actually just eating more than they, than they say they are. That may happen in some instances, but I, I believe most of the time people are pretty accurate, you know, plus or minus, let's say 10, 15% of their caloric intake if they're tracking it, you know, pretty rigorously. Now, the problem is you have a lot of these thyroid patients who are consuming a thousand calories per day, but still gaining weight. So what gives? And you, I put them on the ketogenic diet. I put an elimination diet. I've done AIP diet. I've done, you know, carnivore diet. I've done all sorts of different types of diets with these people and they still don't lose weight. So this tells me that there's something more to this idea that weight gain is primarily driven purely by calories. Now, in the case of thyroid patients, including hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, Graves' disease, et cetera, and by the way, those people who have had their thyroid removed, I think a lot of it is driven by hormones. So I would say more important than calories, even though calories are important, would be what is happening inside of the body at the level of the hormones. A lot of people know this, right? This is why the whole idea of the ketogenic diet exists. They will say, you know, yes, calories are somewhat important. How important is kind of debatable. But they believe that insulin is the primary driver of weight gain. So they'll say, okay, the whole goal here in our dietary recommendations of, let's say, the ketogenic diet or even the carnivore diet to some degree is to reduce as much uh, stimulation of insulin as we possibly can. Therefore, we will sensitize the body to insulin and you'll lose weight. Now, the problem is people do that and they still don't lose weight, right? So there's something else involved other than insulin. So I would say, while insulin is important, there are other hormones that are just as important as well, including the thyroid, including cortisol, including sex hormones, including leptin. And I would say insulin is in there as well. So if you are a thyroid patient struggling with weight, I say my opinion, I've had a lot of success in helping people lose weight, would be to focus more on the hormones as opposed to the calories. Now, yes, you can definitely, you definitely can and should focus on the quality of the food that you're eating and even the, even the quantity to some degree. Um, and we can talk about that if you want. But I, I'm sure you have seen sort of a similar experience as me where people are doing exactly what you say. And, you know, I have no reason to believe that they're, they're lying about what they're, how much food they're consuming and yet they're still gaining weight or not losing weight, you know? And so it's like, what, what do you do at that point? How do you explain this away? And my explanation is that these hormones are, are taking a, a front seat or, you know, a driver's seat. They're, they're the most important as opposed to calories. So that's kind of where I sit on the calorie versus hormone sort of thing when it comes to weight gain. Let's talk a little bit about diet. So you mentioned, cool. you know, quality versus quantity. So, so what do you typically recommend when it comes to, to diet? Well, I think it depends on the type of person that we're talking about here. So, uh, you know, in this discussion, we're talking a lot about hyperthyroid patients, but I would say the way that you would treat a hyperthyroid patient who's, let's say, undergoing natural therapies to treat, let's say, Graves' disease is going to be different than the dietary recommendations that I would give to somebody who, who had hyperthyroidism, who underwent a thyroidectomy or radioactive iodine ablation. So we kind of have to stratify what type of patients we're talking about and what problems we have. So in the case of somebody who has, let's say, active inflammation going on in the body, we are highly suspicious. Let's say they have elevated antibodies floating around in their in their bloodstream. Um, let's say we'll just use Graves as kind of a prototypical example here. Let's say somebody who is having Graves' disease, they're trying to treat that condition. Maybe they're on methimazole, maybe they're not. I would say that's the type of person that needs to focus on dietary. Their, the goal of their dietary changes should be to reduce inflammation and to alter immune function. So in that case, I would do things like or look into diets such as the elimination diet, um, a whole food-based diet, AIP diet, anything that is reducing any stimulation from foods that might stir up inflammation inside of the body, leading to worsening thyroid function, leading to weight gain, et cetera. Now, that is different from the person who, is under, who has undergone, let's say, thyroidectomy or radioactive iodine ablation. That is a person that could be a little bit different in their dietary approaches because presumably they don't have the same you know, immune inflammation sort of aspect. Yes, they may still have some inflammation underlying 
their condition, but you can treat them a little bit differently. So that's the type of person that I would probably say, you're going to have to focus a little more on fasting. So intermittent fasting, prolonged fasting, water fasting, you still want to be cognizant of the quality and the quantity of the food that you're eating. So any, really any sort of whole food based diet would be good in this situation. You could play around with ketogenic diet. You could play around with carnivore diet. You could play around with any sort of whole food diet. Whole 30 would be good in this situation. Pretty much anything, as long as the quality of the food is high, the actual weight loss will come as you start focusing on those other those other hormones I mentioned previously. But that is a different approach than what I would take for the person who is hyperthyroid, who kind of has that actively that active immune dysfunction that we mentioned previously, because that's someone you probably don't want to put on a fasting regimen. Uh, fasting might make them a little bit worse or cause worsening weight gain. So it really kind of depends on where that person's at. And then also, you know, how are you going to how are you going to make changes to their diet based off of their personal preferences? So I'm not the type of person that thinks that you can just apply a broad stroke to everybody with a thyroid condition and say, you know, this universally is the best diet for hyperthyroidism. And this is the best diet for Graves disease. And this is the best diet for those people who have had their thyroid removed or even Hashimoto's for that degree, right? Or for that matter. Um, I don't think that works. I, I try to take a more individualized approach to to dietary um, uh, management of any particular patient. And I think that works the best. And I have had people who have lost weight consuming high carbohydrate diets. I've had people who lost weight consuming, you know, high potatoes, that, you know, lots of potatoes and sweet potatoes in their diet and lots of fiber and everything in between that you can possibly imagine. And the one thing that I found is that no two thyroid patients are really alike. They can have similarities, but they're not the exact same in terms of what's going to work uh, for them. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's no diet that fits everyone perfectly. And I'm glad you brought up the fasting. I I agree that when it comes to my hyperthyroid patients, I typically don't recommend intermittent fasting. And interesting when you mentioned like someone gets a thyroidectomy or radio someone receives radioactive iodine that you that you do recommend fasting. Mm -hmm. So with Hashimoto's, I'm guessing you also don't recommend fasting since it's like more of an active inflammatory state, kind of like Graves. Um, well, actually, I do recommend uh, frequently fasting inside of Hashimoto's, and uh, I, I would say it depends on thyroid function. So I, I, my, my hesitancy in, re in recommending fasting in the case of active, let's say, Graves' disease, which, in which you're being treated naturally, is that the fasted state might you know, cause a little overstimulation of the metabolism and lead to worsening weight loss like beyond the point that you want them yeah. to be, right? Muscle catabolism and so on. And you don't want that. But in the case of Hashimoto's, you do have some people with Hashimoto's who have a hyperthyroid state and they can fluctuate in and out of hyperthyroidism. You know, that's usually uncommon. Usually Hashimoto's is, you know, the low thyroid function generally, but it can fluctuate up and down. Some people do enter hyperthyroidism though with Hashimoto's. So that does occur. But in the case of Hashimoto's, most people are hypothyroid and fasting actually does have benefits in terms of its impacts on inflammation and other areas inside of the body. So it is beneficial in the case of autoimmunity. So for instance, if somebody had, let's say, MS, let's say you're listening to this and you have MS or any sort of you know, lupus, any other autoimmune disease, I still think fasting is highly beneficial for those patients. Um, and so I would say fasting as a therapy outside of its impact on weight loss, but it, it, as it relates to immune function is still very beneficial. So fasting should be used if possible. And in the case of Graves' disease, I think it can be used, but it should be used cautiously. Hopefully that clarifies my sort of standing on that. Yeah, it makes sense. There's just concern that it might exacerbate the hyperthyroid state. Yes. So really just to play it safe, you would say probably on average, everyone's different, but on average, mm -hmm. a person with hyperthyroidism, even if they're gaining weight, maybe not do the intermittent fasting, at least not right now. Whereas Hashimoto's you do recommend as well as those who received a thyroidectomy as well as radioactive iodine, correct? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Um, I think, yeah, it's all based on the situation because I do think there are situations in which a 
somebody who has Graves' disease could could do intermittent fasting or start out, you know, as as with mild fasting, right? You could do maybe 14-hour eating windows or 16-hour eating windows. When I talk about fasting, I'm generally recommending prolonged fasting, water fast, or even dry fast of 24 hours or more. And those are really where you get these therapeutic benefits that I, that I was mentioning previously. And I'm a big fan of using fasting as a therapy for weight loss, but also, as I mentioned, for treating autoimmunity or just balancing immune function. But again, just be cautious. I, the worst thing you could do is if you're listening to this and run out and start doing you know, a two or three day fast and you're already in a hyperthyroid state and all, all of a sudden you start catabolizing some of your muscles, you know, that, that's, that's not what you want to do. Uh, so before you run out and do something like that, you, you know, touch base with someone like a Dr. Osansky or, you know, someone else like uh, that understands this sort of philosophy. Uh, so you don't put yourself in a worsening situation because I, I don't want to ever want to lead anyone down that path. How about cortisol? So you briefly mentioned cortisol. Mm-hmm. So how does that play a role when it comes to weight gain? Like, especially I imagine high cortisol will have a greater impact than someone who has depressed cortisol levels. Yeah, for sure. So cortisol is another really important uh, hormone. In fact, I would say in terms of its impact on weight is not as important as let's say insulin or leptin. I would say I would put those in terms up there as like number one, number two, insulin, leptin, most important fat hormones as it relates to your ability to lose weight. Then I would say you probably have maybe tied for third, fourth place would be the sex hormones and cortisol. Um, and actually I put probably thyroid hormone up there between at probably the number three place. So cortisol is important, but not as important as some of these other ones that we talked that we have been discussing. So cortisol, just brief, you know, sort of physiology for those people who aren't familiar. Cortisol is the hormone that's is secreted when you are under a lot of stress. Its whole goal is to sort of help your body adapt to stress. Now, normally that's actually not a problem. It can be a good thing, but much like these hormones, these syndromes and that we've been talking about previously, whenever something becomes overstimulated, that's when it becomes a problem. So we commonly refer to this as adrenal fatigue or, or adrenal related issues, or even cortisol resistance, depending on who you, who you are and who you're talking to. Um, but what can occur is that as cortisol is becoming overstimulated inside of the body, the body is no longer utilizing it as well as it once was. Now, a lot of people will believe that this, this sort of the way of thinking about adrenal fatigue is that as your body becomes more uh, pressed press with stress over a long period of time, cortisol levels tend to increase. And then over time, your body loses the ability to sort of handle that production. And then it sort of peters out and it goes down. Now, I think that that cycle of cortisol production has mostly been debunked. I don't necessarily believe that that's the case because I've seen people who have weight gain, who have low cortisol. I've seen people who have weight gain, who have high cortisol and sort of everywhere in between. So my way of looking at cortisol is more of what's happening at the cellular level. But as you mentioned, absolutely, high cortisol tends to be the thing that triggers weight gain. But I think also we have to expand our thinking beyond just what is the absolute cortisol level inside of the blood and how are the cells able to utilize and manage cortisol? Uh, Is it efficient or is it inefficient? And then how does that impact weight as well? So I do think it's worthwhile checking the cortisol. That's why I mentioned in the beginning of this, I said, grab your fasted leptin, grab your fasted insulin, grab your serum 8am cortisol, grab your thyroid hormones, you know, grab your sex hormones. You can grab all these at the same time, but they need to be looked at in context and no single lab test can be looked at in isolation. And you can, you can't just look at it and say, oh, my cortisol is let's say 16, therefore it's fine. It may be fine, but you also may have some degree of cortisol resistance, in which case cortisol is causing a problem. And uh, furthermore, this is compounded by the fact that there is a close relationship between cortisol function and thyroid function, you know, such that usually, especially in the case of hypothyroidism, but this also exists with hyperthyroidism, changes to your, your thyroid function will impact cortisol levels as well. So pretty much, and this has been my experience, and you know, you can, you can chime in here if you want uh, in a second, but I think I have, I've yet to meet a thyroid patient who didn't also have some cortisol related issue. Now, how you treat that is sort of 
you know, that's up in the air. If someone's hyperthyroid, maybe you want to lay off some of the adaptogens or use a more mild uh, version of adaptogens. But I'm a big fan of using adaptogens and, and glandulars in the hypothyroid patients. So that includes, by the way, those people who have had radioactive iodine ablation and thyroidectomy. In the case of active graves, you might want to use a different type, but you can also do things like meditation and stress reduction and improve your sleep and, you know, mindfulness, et cetera, the nature walks. I mean, there's so many things that you can do to improve your stress outside of taking adaptogen. But I do, I am a big fan of using adaptogens in certain cases of thyroid patients. It sounds like cortisol is a factor, but you would say the top three, leptin, insulin, and thyroid hormone. Yeah. And then so cortisol would be potentially, it could be a factor, but would be number four. Uh, the, the way that I think about it, it, this is sort of the healthful way to think about it. I don't think this is exact, but this is sort of how you can think about it. So let's imagine somebody has 50 pounds. Let's say somebody is 50 pounds overweight. Now, the conventional thought might be, okay, that weight is because I've gained 50 pounds of, you know, I've been eating too many calories, right? Now, I would say scratch that and sort of, this is how I think about it when I, when I was treating patients, and this seemed to work very effectively. Some fraction of that 50 pounds that you're overweight is due to, let's say, leptin resistance. Some fraction is due to insulin resistance. Some fraction is due to cortisol. And some fraction may be due to sex hormone imbalances. Because again, the thyroid regulates all of these things. So if you have a thyroid problem, you're going to have problems in all these areas. So what you'll see is you'll see somebody who comes in, they get treated, let's say they get... Uh, they start doing ketogenic diet. So guess what? They lose 10 pounds. Well, guess what? You treated the insulin resistant fraction, but you did not address the leptin. You did not address the sex hormones and you did not address the cortisol. So it's not until you sort of address the complete uh, hormone disruption that is inside of your body that you'll then lose that complete 50 pounds of weight. But everything is kind of contributing either together or in concert, or in, at least there's, there's never really a case that I've seen where it's like somebody just has 50 pounds of of weight gain related to their insulin level. And all they need to do is go on the ketogenic diet and the ketogenic diet and they lose weight because they fix that problem. That does happen, but that's very rare. You know, most common is like somebody does something, they lose two to five pounds and then they plateau. And then they're like, well, what's going on here? Well, the, what's going on here is you didn't address those other issues. Those other hormone imbalances that we talked about previously. So that's kind of how I would think about it, or at least wrap my head around it. And that's kind of the way that I would explain it to, to patients that I would treat um, in the past. And that seemed to work the best because we would, we'd address one problem and then look and see how much is left over of what's left. And then we'd say, okay, well, leptin resistance is still here. We know because we just checked your leptin level, it's still high, you know, so leptin needs to be addressed still. And some, some, you know, let's say they lose 25 pounds, they have 25 pounds left to lose. Well, we need to address leptin in order to get that down in addition to all the other things we mentioned. So whenever you're trying to lose weight as well, a plan should be multifactorial. It should have a lot of different therapies. It should never just be, I'm going to go on the ketogenic diet and that's that. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's a recipe for losing maybe a couple pounds. Uh, and maybe damaging your thyroid in the process, especially if you're eating pro-inflammatory foods. It's really easy to do some of these diets in, in the wrong way. So that, that's how I would think about that. I don't know if that's a little more clear. Another hormone I want to throw at you, estrogen. So if someone has mm -hmm. estrogen dominance, whether it's too much estrogen or you know not enough estrogen in relation to progesterone, again, mm -hmm. probably I'm guessing not as big of a factor as you know the insulin, the leptin, the thyroid, but would you say that could also be a factor? Or? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I, I would say sex hormones are also heavily neglected by conventional doctors as it relates to their impact on weight. So as you mentioned, let's just say it, it's less important in men. Testosterone is really important, both men and female in terms of its impact on immune function and weight loss. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but on the point of estrogen, estrogen is really important in, in primarily in women, right? It is important in men as it impacts libido and so on. But but for women, it's, it's much more important. And you, what's really important is not your absolute estrogen level so much as as it is the balance between estrogen and progesterone. Now, uh, this is sort of the way that I, I explain to people. 
imagine we took a hundred women, we lined them up at, um, in a line and we looked at the, just the, the physique of each of these women. There are going to be differences in, in terms of their ratios, their heights, you know, everything, right? Their, their, their bust, their weight, their thighs, everything. Now, those differences are primarily related to it, the impact of these sex hormones on their body during development. So that's sort of how you can how you can think about what estrogen is doing. Now, if there's a relative imbalance of estrogen, such that estrogen is much higher than progesterone, you're going to start to develop certain things. You're going to start to develop weight gain, usually in the breasts and usually in the hips and in the thighs and in, and the, in the butt sort of area, because that's what estrogen does. Estrogen is stimulatory to adipose tissue. That's just physiology 101. So if you have too much estrogen, if you have too much stimulation, the fat cells in those areas are going to enlarge. That, that's just, that's, it's as easy as that. Now, what can happen though, is how do you get to the state of estrogen dominance? There's a couple of ways you can do that. You can get, you can actually have a absolute increase in estrogen levels, which means that let's say progesterone is here, estrogen can just go up and the gap between the two widens. You can have a reduction in progesterone, which is pretty common by the way, um, especially as women are aging. So you kind of have a combination of things where estrogen go, or uh, estrogen staying the same, if not falling, but progesterone falling more rapidly than estrogen is falling. So the gap is still widening, even though they're both going down. Then you can also have exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals or xenoestrogens. These are compounds that you come in contact with. Milk has a lot of these things as well. So dairy products do. And they stimulate the, the estrogen receptor cells inside of the body. And they act as if estrogen is there, even though it's not. So you can have a relative normal estrogen and progesterone, but due to overstimulation at the cellular level, it is appearing to the body as if estrogen levels are higher than they really are. So that one's like a little more of the let's say the more um, difficult one to diagnose because you can't really test for it. There's no test for EDCs really. And you know, what, at least none that are available to most people. Um, but the other ones are more common. You can check for estrogen and progesterone levels and you can look at the serum levels and see how they're changing. But the problem is women have menstrual cycles and estrogen levels and progesterones fluctuate over time. So if you don't know how to test estrogen and progesterone levels, then, and, and you're not consistent in how you're testing them and what time of the month you're testing them, then the levels are just going to be sort of whatever. Nobody really knows what to do with them necessarily, unless you're testing consistently at a similar interval. But yeah, to, to answer the question, I think estrogen is very important, especially for women. And I think estrogen causes the, the way that I would think about it in, in women who are gaining weight is you want to look at where that weight is being placed on your body. Because I think where you're gaining your weight can tell you a lot about what type of hormone imbalances you have inside of the body. So for instance, is, is the weight in, primarily in the hips and the thighs area? Is it primarily in the breasts? Is it, is it in the abdomen? Abdomen tells you something different than it does in those other areas that we mentioned previously. So think about where the weight is being, think about where you're gaining the weight and think about the um, sort of how it's, it's, how it's presenting on your body and how rapidly it is occurring. And that can tell you a lot about what sort of hormones you should be looking at. Even if the hormone lab tests aren't exactly 100% indicative of what's happening, you can look at that, the patterns on your body, and that can give you a lot of information. So real quick, do you care if, do you mind if I talk about testosterone as well? No, not at all. So testosterone, I would say, is really important as well for both women or men and women, and especially those people who have autoimmune thyroid disease. So there's some debate inside the medical community as to testosterone and, and why. Well, let me put it this way. We know that women tend to get autoimmune diseases at a higher frequency than men do. Now, originally, no one really kind of knows why, but some people thought, well, it's probably it might be due to the baseline level of testosterone in men versus women, because men naturally have much higher testosterone levels than women do. So women tend to get you know autoimmune disease sometimes eight to 10 times more frequently or more commonly than men. So they thought maybe it's because of that low testosterone. And in fact, it does seem, it don't, we do have studies which show that testosterone is playing a role in the immune system in some ways. So I do think low testosterone is primary, is very common in women who have Graves' disease as well as Hashimoto's because they're both autoimmune diseases, right? And we also know that the thyroid is impacting testosterone levels. And we also know that testosterone impacts your weight through its impact on muscle mass, lean muscle mass, and energy levels, uh, libido, and mood as well. So testosterone, I would say, is very important because it can be used as a therapy 
to not only treat the underlying autoimmune disease of let's say Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, but it can also help with weight loss. So it, that, that's assuming by the way, that your testosterone is low. So testosterone, I would say, I even kind of have said this before, but I kind of think of it as a secret therapy, if you will, uh, for treating autoimmune disease because of its impact on weight and on and autoimmunity. Treating estrogen is a little more difficult because we don't, you really rarely ever do you ever want to give um, a woman like an estrogen uh, hormone, like a bioidentical hormone, uh, unless they're in menopause. So if you're, if you're a premenopausal woman, estrogen's kind of off the table in terms of hormones that you should be taking. Progesterone can be used and testosterone can be used, but estrogen is usually off the table. So that's why I say focusing on testosterone can be beneficial because increasing that can cause a good impact on immune function as well as weight loss. Now, there are roundabout ways that you can also increase testosterone, such as using DHEA, which, you know, I don't know if you, if you recommend DHEA at all, but so the, the problem with DHEA is it's a precursor hormone to the other hormones downstream, but giving someone DHEA and hoping that they produce more testosterone doesn't always work, right? Somebody might take that DHEA and use it as a precursor to produce more estrogen instead of the testosterone that you want them to produce, in which case you're worse off than you were. So there are, there are different things that you can do as a patient. You can get testosterone creams and gels. You can use DHEA. Um, pregnenolone might even be a potential option. And that can also be used for the treatment of um, cortisol issues and so on. But yeah, the, the, the topic of hormone balance and testosterone, estrogen, progesterone can get pretty complex and it's very nuanced. So I think it depends on the person. Um, it's hard to give you know broad statements and recommendations for, for individuals in this setting. What I'm sure some people are wondering the action steps they should take, the solution. So if someone is, uh, if someone has hyperthyroidism or Hashimoto's and they're struggling to lose weight, as far as testing goes, the testing, as you kind of mentioned, it does probably depend on the person. But let's say if someone goes to a functional medicine practitioner or just does some testing on your own, these days you could go yeah. into a lab and just test yourself for insulin, test yourself for in, uh, for leptin. So if someone finds out that they have higher insulin and or leptin and maybe some of these other imbalances, how do you get these hormones in balance? What would you recommend? A lot of different, there's a lot of things that you can do. And in fact, the, we could probably spend an hour or more talking about treatments, but let me try to distill it down to this. I, I would say the first place that you want to focus is on your thyroid, uh, because that's the thing that I would think will have the most impact in this, in this setting. If you're not a patient with hyperthyroidism or Hashimoto's, you want to focus on your leptin. But in the case of these people that we're talking to, people listening to this, um, and the patients that you and I, you know, that you treat and I used to treat, they have thyroid problems. So the number one thing that you, that you would want to do first is address thyroid function. Now let's assume that you are somebody who has hyperthyroidism and you are not taking something like a methimazole. That means what you want to do is address the autoimmune aspect of that. Try to get thyroid function back to normal as quickly as possible. If you're taking methimazole, try to get off of methimazole. The best thing that you can do is get off of methimazole because methimazole is literally the brakes on your metabolism. So if you're taking methimazole and, and gaining weight, the single best thing that you can do is whatever it takes to get off of that methimazole. Now, that doesn't mean just yank yourself off of it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing the natural therapies that balance immune system, balance immune function, you know, uh, take supplements that you need to, let's say you need fish oil, let's say you need fix your gut, fix, you know, all those underlying issues that we've been talking about previously. That's where I would start without getting too in depth into those. That's, I think the best thing that you could do for, for that person that is assuming that person has graves and let's say they're either on methimazole or not try to get that under control as quickly as you can. That will give you the most bang for your buck in terms of efficiency. The second thing that you would want to do, which is probably going to go along with the first would be adjust diet and consider, I would say fasting, because the reason I say these is because there are other therapies. We got medications, we've got, we got sauna therapy, we got detox therapy, we got cryotherapy, we got all these other therapies that you can look at. But diet and fasting are two things that you are in control over, 
right? So you may not be control, in control over what medication your doctor has given you, but you do have control over what you put inside of your mouth. So focus on the diet as, as much as you can. And then on the flip side of that coin is fasting as you control what you don't put in your mouth, right? Because you're going without food for a period of time. So I think if you, if you have found that you're one person, if you're in a situation where fasting is safe, use that. No matter what, do your diet. No matter what, focus on the thyroid. When it comes to those people who have undergone thyroidectomy or radioactive iodine ablation, and I'm not sure how many of those people are listening to this, uh, so I don't know how much time to spend on that, but that's a different story. The, the philosophy of addressing your thyroid is still the same. However, in this case, that means you'll have to address thyroid medication, right? Because in the case of hyperthyroidism with Graves, you're still producing some, you know, in abundance in most cases, right? Um, but in the case of thyroidectomy or RAI, they no longer produce thyroid hormone, which means they are 100% reliant upon thyroid medication to as their primary source of thyroid hormone, which means that if you're trying to optimize your metabolism, you have to adjust that medication. And that makes it more difficult because that's outside of your hands. That's in the hands of the doctor. But thyroid function, number one, no matter where you're at, is the thing to focus on. If, if that means, you know, getting off of thyroid blocking medications, uh, uh, balancing your immune system so that your body stops overproducing it, you know, that will help, that will go a long way with inflammation. Or on the flip side, if you are somebody that needs to take thyroid medication, still that needs to be number one. And then number two and number three would be diet and or fasting. Fasting for sure in the case of RAI and thyroidectomy, possibly in the case of active Graves' disease in which you're not being treated with a with thyroid blocking medication. So is that a decent starting place? I mean, we could go into more detail if you want on various yeah, other therapies. No, that's great. Um, I assume also stress management for the the cortisol. Sleep, how, stress, how about, yeah. Yeah. How about supplementation? Sure. Supplementation. So uh, again, that is going to rely, that's going to depend heavily on the type of hormone imbalances that you have. So preceding the, the treatment recommendations that I mentioned, you always want to get testing first because testing will help direct the type of therapies that you're going to be focusing on, right? So let's say you get your insulin checked and your insulin checks out that it, it shows that it's, you have a significant amount of insulin resistance. Well, that means that you can now focus your supplementation on treating the problem of insulin resistance. So in that case, um, berberin, you could use dietary fibers, konjac, propylmanin, Glucomannan is another one of those. Uh, fish oil is really helpful for that. Turmeric is really helpful for that. So there are things that you can use, alpha lipoic acid. In the case of insulin resistance, you can target supplementations to that particular issue. In the case of leptin, there are, let's say leptin is really high in this case and, and insulin is not in, in the second case. Well, there are some things that you can take, uh, glycosaminoglycans, L-glutamine. Those are particularly beneficial. Fish oil is another one that's beneficial for both leptin resistance and uh, insulin resistance. And I will throw on berberine as well to treat leptin, leptin resistance, even though that's more of a insulin resistance type of issue. Um, in the case of thyroid, let's say, you, let's say you're trying to balance your immune system. Well, then in that case, your supplementation will be more directed to your immune system. So you want to be looking at magnesium, vitamin D and zinc. You know, they, so it kind of really depends on what the underlying issue is and how you want to address that. I would say universally, though, some good supplements that everyone could benefit from would be a, a solid multivitamin, uh, vitamin D, probiotics. And then I would say, uh, what else would be a basic recommendation? Magnesium. Well, you said omegas. You said fish oil. Fish oils, oil. omegas. I'm trying to think of like, let's say, let's say somebody doesn't know what their lab tests are. These would be the things that you could start with right away. And the whole goal of these wouldn't be necessarily to help with weight loss, but would be to sort of level the playing field, replace loss of nutrients so the body is functioning more optimally so they can take care of itself. Oh, I would also add protein powder in there pretty much regardless of whatever situation you're in. Uh, protein powder is really good for managing appetite, uh, helping build lean muscle mass. And it has a lot of other benefits as well. So I'd throw protein powder in that mix of just general supplementation for, for pretty much anybody with thyroid conditions. You, you'd be and, safe and, to use and, those. Any specific type of protein power, powder, uh, like um, pea protein, whey protein? Yeah, I, I would say um, in the case of in the case of um, autoimmune disease, 
generally you want to stay away from whey-based protein powders if you have thyroid conditions, especially autoimmune mm-hmm. disease. Some people can get away with it. Uh, now, the downside to, to whey protein, and we can get a, a longer conversation about this, but the, actually one of the benefits of whey protein is, is it has a pretty robust increase. It causes a robust increase in glutathione just naturally based off the amino acid profile, which is amazing for anybody who has thyroid gland inflammation, which is all autoimmune disease. So we're talking Hashimoto's and Graves' disease, right? So if you can, you would want to use whey protein for the pure benefit of getting more glutathione. The problem is it also has an immunogenic component wherein it can cause worsening inflammation inside the body. So if you can get by with whey, I think it actually can be beneficial in some situations, but you're safe. You're, you're more safe just starting with like a pea-based protein or a plant-based protein. Avoid the whey for now, at least until you can tolerate things, at least until you can get your gut function under control. So stick for the more vegan plant-based protein powders for thyroid patients, at least to start. And maybe you can dip your toes into the whey sort of stuff. Another one would be egg protein, which actually is, is pretty good if you can get it. And then you can also try bovine bovine-based protein powders as well. Those tend to be pretty good for uh, AIP diets and whatnot. But so you can kind of play around with the various types of protein powders that are available. But I would say if this is getting, you know, if it's getting into the weeds a little bit, just just focus on the, the pea-based protein powder, the vegan-based protein powders. That's probably the best place to start. But do look for fillers, do look for binders, do look for uh, dairy, hidden dairy in there. Because if you're just going to the grocery store and grabbing like a vegan protein powder or something, you never know what's in it. All sorts of artificial player, fl- flavors, dyes, fillers, binders. You, that's all stuff you want to avoid 100%. So make sure you're getting a good, a good quality protein powder that doesn't have many added ingredients. I agree. And I, I typically don't recommend whey protein. I just yeah. threw that out just because a lot of people do consume whey protein powder. Yeah. But usually the, I agree. The pea protein, the hydrolyzed beef yeah. or like AIP. Yeah. And uh, even, even pea protein. I find if someone's like following AIP, usually they could tolerate like a good organic pea protein. In most I, I think so too. I, there's a lot of people that will say, oh, I can't use this because I'm on AIP. I'm, yeah. I really don't see any issue. Usually, you know, obviously there's five to 10% of people that just never fit the mold and they always react, you know, but for the, for the most part, I think it's fine. So it sounds like our, 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 uh, our experience is pretty similar there. As you mentioned, we could go on probably for another hour, but unfortunately we, we got to wrap things up and where could people find out more about you? Sure. So you could go to my website. Uh, if you just type in my name, Dr. Weston Childs, the actual website is restartmed.com. You could go or just type in my name or go to restartmed.com. I've got a podcast. I've got a YouTube channel, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Pinterest, you know, you name it, it's all over there. So just head to the website. I've got a bunch of free downloads. My information tends to focus more on hypothyroidism. I do talk about all types of thyroid conditions, you know, and generally the people who are who are coming to, to seek information from me, these are people with hyperthyroidism who are now hypothyroid, meaning these are people who have undergone radioactive iodine ablation or thyroidectomy. So, so I have a lot of information still on hyperthyroidism, but not as much as Dr. Osansky, I would say, because you kind of primarily focus on hyperthyroidism, right? Yeah, I'd say about 80% of my patients are hyperthyroid. So I do work with some Hashimoto's patients. Mm. Oh, but, Hashimoto's too. Yeah, but, but so it's, it's, it was the flip for, for me. So, uh, but yeah, I still have information on both and, you know, still obviously uh, enjoy helping patients with any type of thyroid problem. Right? It doesn't really matter to me what they have. Um, that's just sort of my passion. All right, wonderful. And of course, I'll include links to his website and podcast in the show notes. But yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Childs. It was great chatting with you again. Look forward to uh, having yet another conversation in the future, whether it's about losing weight or, or some other topic related to thyroid health. Let's do it. I think it'll be good. It was a pleasure being on here. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health related topics. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
So this was the second time I interviewed Dr. Childs, and it was a pleasure chatting with him again. And if you happen to hear any clunking sounds during the interview, it most likely was Dr. Child's water bottle, as he was drinking out of a stainless steel water bottle throughout the interview, and at times would clunk it down on the desk. Anyway, for those with hyperthyroidism who are interested in learning more about losing weight, I do have a solo podcast episode entitled Maintaining a Healthy Weight When Dealing with Hyperthyroidism. This is episode number 12, and so you might want to check this out when you get the chance. And if you have Hashimoto's, a lot of this information will also benefit you as well on that podcast episode, although you could also find some information on my Natural Endocrine Solutions website. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties, and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.